0: Today's show is brought to you by IBM. Technology today has never been smarter, but smart only matters when you put it to good use. Together, we can build a smarter future for all of us. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play an interview Peter Kafka conducted on his podcast, Recode Media, and I'm here in New York City. Right now, with the Peter Kafka. Hey, Peter.
1: Hey, the Kara Swisher. I like this crossover episode. It's very exciting. I'm the one
0: and only Kara Swisher. Let's try to keep all our designations correct. Um, So you just interviewed uh, David Itzkoff about his new book, Explain Who Dave Is and What His Book Is About.
1: Dave has this awesome beat at the New York Times. He Mm -hmm. he covers culture for them, but he really sort of specializes in comedians and stand-ups in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, Really great writer. Really smart. Um, Also has a wickedly acerbic Twitter feed, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure you're following. Yes, I am. Uh Uh-huh. Somehow has escaped the the edicts of, of the New York Times Twitter regulation. Right. I don't know how he got past. We talked a lot about that actually. Yeah. But the reason he had him on all is escaped. Yeah, we <laughs> all
0: escaped. Yeah, has gone off the reservation. We got <laughs> Mike Isaac. Who knows what he's doing? Far hot. I don't. I know. I do like There's, that they're off
1: the reservation. Yeah, I do. I like them off the reservation. While he wasn't tweeting, uh, Dave wrote a biography of Robin Williams. Ah, and it's called Robin. San
0: Francisco guy.
1: Uh, San Francisco guy. They named they just named a tunnel after him. Mm-hmm. Fascinating life. I grew up with him. Mm-hmm. You probably did as well. Morgan I forgot Mindy. what a giant star he was for Mark how. Mm -hmm. And that he was a TV star, stand-up comedy star, wasn't a movie star for a good 10 years into his career, then was a giant movie star for another 20 years. It was Mm -hmm. a fascinating life story.
0: Yeah, he is, he, and, and a sad end, and a sad end. sad
1: end with like some weird twists and turns, and still some mystery about it. We talked about that. It's 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 a melancholy book about a really charismatic.
0: Person. Yeah, he always gave off that. It was interesting. I met him once or twice in San Francisco around because he was sometimes at tech things and stuff. And uh, you know, he's someone really well worth. What a genius! What a comedian. Yeah, genius. so it's a
1: book well worth your time, and it's an hour worth your time.
0: Fantastic! Enjoy. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing this interview. But before we start, I have a request. If you like this interview, then go subscribe to Peter's show. He has new interviews every week that are just like this and I think anyone who likes Recode Decode would enjoy Recode Media too just search for Recode Media with Peter Kafka on Apple Podcasts Spotify or whatever podcast app you prefer
1: if you dig through the stacks there, you're going to find two Kara Swisher interviews in <laughs> yes, the Archive. So so that's, those, are, those are free along. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. If you like this show because you're listening to the show, please tell someone about the show. Thanks in advance. That's my full intro. I am here with Dave Itzkoff, world's best Twitter, New York Times culture reporter, and author of a book called Robin.
2: It's the life story of Robin Williams. It's an excellent book. Go buy it. Hi, Dave. Thanks. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, which I will in no way live up to. Um, No, no, no. I
1: said to my wife, I'm doing this and this and this. I'm interviewing Dave Itzkoff. Oh, I really like his Twitter. So we're going to spend most of the time talking about Twitter. Great. um, And then we can also – let's flip it around. Let's talk about the book first. There's a book. It's great. Thank you. It's a comprehensive biography of Robin Williams. It is out today, I think, is why this podcast is out. May 15th. Is today May 15th? Yeah, probably. Okay. Um, how long did this take to, to, to create?
2: It was about three and a half years. Uh, I spent probably a year to a year and a half just reporting. Robin Williams uh, died. Uh, August of 2014. Uh, so the real reporting did not start until maybe uh, November of that year. And it is, I mean—
1: You've you've taken this. Uh, it'd be weird if you didn't take it seriously, but it is a comprehensively reported. I've, I've used that word twice now. Um, you've you've talked to just about everyone you could talk to who's who's crossed his path.
2: I certainly tried to. I think that's the best way to do it. It was a pretty. I mean, he led an extraordinary life, and I think people uh, perhaps forget. I mean, just the the breadth of his career and really the whole life that he led before. He got famous. And we'll talk
1: about that arc in a minute, but just yeah. just to give people a sense, this is – obviously you couldn't talk to him because he was dead, but you had talked to him multiple times over the course of your Times reporting. So, That's right. So his voice – to you is in this book as well. Uh, looks like you talked to at least one of his uh, family members extensively, his son, Zach.
2: Yeah, he has three children, and I talked to his oldest son, Zach, uh, as well as his first wife, uh, Valerie. He has a surviving uh, half-brother, McLaurin, who I spoke to. Because
1: sometimes when you tell someone's life story, there is there is uh, a person or an entity sort of pushing back against you telling it if it's not authorized. But in this case, basically, you had sort of cooperation from the family or at least parts of the family.
2: Yeah, his family is—, uh, is complex there are kind of different yeah. uh, branches and divisions of it but I certainly tried uh, you know to get support or involvement or participation from all of them I don't think I don't think you could uh, for reasons we may get into this, uh, you know you could you'll not be able to get all of them but I certainly tried to get as many as I could.
1: This is someone who has basically been in my life as long as I can remember because I was a kid when Mork and Mindy was on. Um, and I assume for just about anyone listening to this, there's some version of that where he was been sort of omnipresent in their life unless you sort of only recently became aware of pop culture really in the last few years. But he was a giant star for multiple
2: decades. Yeah, and, and had kind of reinventions, uh, you know, I mean, for you and I, I mean, we remember Mork and Mindy and Popeye and – you know, we were there for, of course, Good Morning Vietnam and Dead Poet Society, and you know, we were older when things like uh, Aladdin or Jumanji came out in the '90s. But there's a whole other generation, uh, you know, of fans and people who are in there. Uh, 20s now that that's what they grew up on and that's what they know Robin for. And then of course, I mean, you know, the years and years of stand-up and the stand-up specials, the comic relief uh, specials, etc. I mean, mean,
1: there was a period where he had a hit TV show, he had a hit comedy special, he had a hit record and this wasn't as famous as he was going to get. That was the beginning part of his stardom and then he became more famous.
2: Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary to think that he was that guy, let's say, in uh, 1978 exactly as you say. I mean, you know, best-selling comedy record that would go on to win a Grammy, you know, top five TV show. And he's still 20 years out, let's say, from winning his Academy Award. I don't think anybody would have anticipated that looking at him, you know, in 1978 or so. But – Also, if you knew the sort of origins of his career and the work that he did before his sort of seeming overnight success, I mean, he was always on this kind of dual track where, you know, I mean, he was classically trained. He studied, you know, for three years at Juilliard and before that had attended two other colleges where he was focusing on acting. And so, I mean, as much as... I think people sometimes want to paint him as the archetype of the, you know, the comedian who one day woke up and decided he wanted to be serious. Uh, he always had both of those uh, parts of his uh, right. personality. Right.
1: Like you say, there is this idea that you, you become a, a giant comedian and then you decide that what you really want to do is be a serious person. And, <laughs> and he is sort of the archetype for that. Uh, but other versions of the writer Tom Hanks or Jim Carrey has played with this. A lot of folks yeah. play with this. Usually doesn't work very well
2: or yes i mean that that i mean i think people people become skeptical of it because yeah. it is such a kind of well-trod path now
1: you mentioned this in the book after Robin Williams died in in 2014 that there's this giant outpouring over the internet um we've now become sort of used to this idea that someone who was a big deal prince david bowie dies and then there's a, a public reflection on the internet what i was thinking about when you were talking about that was I think there are not many people who were as big a star as he was for as long as he was. And I wonder if we're going to have versions of that going forward because culture is so atomized. Um, You know, someone like Rihanna or Beyonce is very popular. Lots of people know them, but it's hard to imagine them having... Such a long career that touches so many people. Um, another, I'm thinking again, like right now, we're actually I think we've already done talking about Kanye West, right? But that was a big deal. <laughs> a week ago, everyone in my Twitter feed is talking about Kanye West. But my hunch is that actually most people in the world are not talking about Kanye West. A long way of saying just about everyone knew Robin Williams for some reason or another. And do you think we're going to have other people like that?
2: It's hard to predict but I, I think you're right that I mean the volume of outpouring had to do with uh, on the one hand as you say the fact that pretty much to you know every person on the world in the world some who had you know internet access they knew who he was they had a kind of idea of him in their mind in some way they on some level probably thought of him as a joyful person or a person who brought joy to others so yeah. that just the loss of him, uh, you know, was really palpable and also, you know, the terribly tragic manner in which he died and at least at the time when he died, the just – uh, the sort of uh, lack of information, or just not not knowing really the circumstances that had precipitated his his death, and that you know he seemed to have been you know there's obviously a timeline, but you know he had he was still making movies. He had just had uh, a not so well received sitcom, but he seemed to be out there in the world and still working. And so to you know. That just sort of sudden, uh, you know, loss and the, not the the lack of understanding or not knowing why it had happened. I think was it's, it was hard for for me, and I'm sure for many other people to just kind of compute. I, I assume that it was drug or
1: alcohol related. There'd been a story about him being in a in a clinic in, in Hazleton, Minnesota, uh, previously. That I just said, oh, it's, it's sad, but that makes sense. Then the narrative was he had depression, and there was a whole discussion about depression. Subsequently, there's now a different diagnosis of, for his death.
2: Well, there were you know, a few iterations of what you're talking about, and I think it's it's kind of natural for people to do when there is a kind of you know vacuum of information, and and it, understandably that you know his family and his closest friends they themselves were still just kind of learning what had happened to him, processing that, trying to figure out how, if at all, do we put this into the world. So in in that absence, I think people just kind of made their own hypotheses. And yes, I mean people sort of I think went to the kind of uh you know the 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 again the stereotype of the kind of you know the sad clown the person who right. outwardly is happy but inside is is you know very broken and and he did uh, have depression and he uh, you know did wrestle with Anxiety. Uh, so you know, people kind of made that assumption. Uh, then, uh, within about a week of his death, uh, you know, it was disclosed that he had recently been diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's disease, and uh, that was that was correct to a point that he had been given diagnosis of Parkinson's. Uh, but I- in fact, and this did not come out until after his uh, autopsy, which was uh, you know several months after his death, uh, that uh, you know. That autopsy and specifically, you know, the analysis of of, uh, brain tissue of his found, uh, you know, the symptoms of of what's called Lewy body dementia, which uh, is, you know, the pathology is somewhat similar to to Parkinson's, but the uh, sort of the spectrum of, uh, you know, symptoms is is, uh, greater and, uh, you know, the effect that it likely had on him, uh, you know, uh, is just pretty devastating.
1: Um, It seems important to his family and friends that people understand that's why he died. Um, It seems somewhat important to you as a storyteller. Is that an important part of sort of understanding his life? Is, is, Is understanding the real story of his death crucial to understanding his life?
2: Well, I, I mean, I think in just in in telling a story, you want to be as uh, precise as possible, and and you know, I, I think because of again the na- the nature of his death, the out the immediate outpouring that surrounded it. I don't know how attuned people were to some of the subsequent developments. Right, it's hard to,
1: it's hard to go back in the news cycle.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, for, by I, the I,
1: way, for people who do this professionally, let alone someone who just. See stuff on a screen.
2: Sure, sure, and and you, you know, I, I mean, I also want to be clear. I mean, you know, some of the exact, uh, you know, circumstances and and you know uh, what what happened in terms of his death. Uh, you know. Uh, maybe only a very few number of people yeah. know exactly what happened. Maybe only he knows uh, would have known exactly what happened, and so we're not going to get uh, some of those answers. And and in some sense, it is some you know some of those blanks are not uh, going to be filled in. But uh, you know, as I was saying, I think you know some people probably you know a lot of people sort of came to that immediate conclusion that uh, you know oh he was he was depressed, he didn't like the way his career was going, and that's the. That's for them, that was the the right. answer. that's what that that's the the story that they tell themselves. Uh, then, when the Parkinson's uh, diagnosis was announced, people then say, well, okay, he 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 was aware he had something that was going to be debilitating over his his lifetime, and you know he was not going to be able to, you know be be cured of it, and he didn't want to live with that. And uh, you know with with louis body, it's 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 uh, it's more complicated. This is a heavy conversation.
1: Uh, Robin Williams um, was a giant star because he was this manic, joyful, mile-a-minute, funny person, right? Yeah. And, I mean, later became known for roles where he, did some of, where he didn't do some of that. Um, when you're writing someone's life story and they are uh, uh, an incredibly charismatic person and you're confined to typing words about them on a page <laughs> and you can include a couple of photos, how do you spend time trying to think about conveying – that person's magnetism and charisma and and how unique they were.
2: Yeah, it's really difficult, and I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, but it is something that I, I definitely wrestled with because you don't uh, – there, there's, there's nothing like the experience of just watching him perform. It says it all. It tells you everything you need to know, and there's so much energy and dynamism. Do you ever think, oh man, I wish this was just online because i just drop a YouTube (laughs) clip in here and then you could watch it. And and, or maybe, by the way, I I
1: haven't gone back and watched this stuff from the late 70s and early 80s in a long time. Maybe it isn't as exciting as it is in my mind because I was the right age. I
2: I will say, I mean, particularly if you go back to some of the earliest televised stand-up and especially the uh, I think it's called Live at the Roxy. It's like when, you know, this very first HBO special that he did where he was doing really more kind of character pieces than kind of straight stand-up. I mean, it's, I think it completely holds up. Yeah, because
1: comedy often does not hold up, right? It's it's specific to a time, the references are specific, and even just the style there's a lot of stuff that that just does not. You'll read about I don't know Charlie Chaplin or Lil and Hardy or Lenny Bruce or all for different reasons, and they 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 won't strike you as gut-busting.
2: How dare now. you? Yeah. No, I, I mean, all those people that you mentioned, I think they're still, but I, I, I you know. I mean, I, Lenny
1: Bruce, thing is the hardest yeah, one to actually Yeah, yeah,
2: actually, that, that might be true. But I, 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 I do take your point, and it is it is very difficult, and it, it it, really does not serve him, at least in a book, to try to, you know, just transcribe a portion of a routine at, at length, and then in brackets. I mean, I had to do it in places, say, okay, now he adopts this voice, or now right. he's doing this with his body. It's not equivalent, and you just, you know that as as the writer, but i think that what you can do is provide i think a lot of the context for what's happening either you know in his mind in his world in his preparation for these routines that you know kind of lets you understand really i mean some of some of the bits are just you know they're just funny bits they're just things that you know he he tossed off and they're they're funny for that reason but i think the the you know as he did it more as he got better at it, and as he started to really incorporate things, uh, you know, from his life and started to open up a little bit more on stage, I mean, the—I the, the uh, I think just the relationship between, you know, his life and the stand-up is very, uh, is very rich, and it really does kind of illuminate uh, the routines to the best that you can, you know, describe them in print.
1: So, I didn't do this, but I think when you go by Robin by David Skoff— you should read it and then periodically go over to your laptop and head to YouTube <laughs> um, and, and watch and, and watch a clip. Um, what you should do now is listen to this message from our sponsor that allows us to bring this show to you for free.
0: I'm back in the studio with Peter Kafka. We're going to take a quick break now to hear from some of our sponsors. But first, Peter, remind the listeners where we find more interviews like this one.
1: Your listeners are so smart. They know exactly where Tell to find them. another podcast. Apple Podcasts or Spotify or the place that you got this podcast. Go back there and get more.
0: Fantastic. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. We live in a world that's creating AI-enabled everything, a world with more IoT devices than people. Today, technology has never been smarter. But smart only matters when you put it to work where it matters. When we put smart to work, we can help save species, increase crop yields, and make progress, not just for a few of us, but for all of us. So let's get to it. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at IBM.com smart.
1: We're back here with Dave Itzkoff, world's best Twitterer, and also the biographer of Robin Williams. Um, I wanted to ask you a few more things about Robin Williams, or just talk more. Maybe, maybe talk is better than ask. Um, I was surprised to remember, because you reminded me, that he was a giant star in the 70s, early 80s, um, as a stand-up and on TV, and then was not a movie star for a long time, was in movies for a long time. Um, but it was not Robin Williams, the giant movie star. It took him almost a decade, right?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, six or seven years. I mean, Mork and Mindy ends, uh, you know, in nineteen eighty-two, and then Good Morning Vietnam is like late eighty-seven, early eighty-eight. Because in
1: my mind, he felt omnipresent, but he was omnipresent sort of as a character, not as a giant movie star.
2: Yeah, and 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 certainly, you know, the responses to those movies that came out. Let's say. Uh, you know, between Popeye and and Good Morning Vietnam, I mean, there was you know, decent reception to something like World According to Garp right. or Moscow on the Hudson, but some of them were really dismissed and uh, to the point that people were like, Robin Williams is just not a leading man. It's not going right. to happen. People are not interested in him and he certainly internalized that, that really bothered him yeah well i mean he it was something that i think he was worried about from from the outset uh even before making some of these films and seeing the response to them that it always uh, I mean, he certainly knew what a phenomenon Mork and Mindy was. Uh, the even the connection to Mork or being perceived as Mork or called Mork everywhere he went uh, that got at him, and uh, you know, it starts to create this feeling that maybe that's all I'm ever going to have. Maybe that was the best opportunity I had. It's not going to get better than that. And uh, you know, as you start to you know, you try to step out in in other ways, and you see. Uh, people reject that it starts to reinforce that and and he was very acutely aware of those things and did really uh, you know internalize them and and take them to heart and that uh, you know the the um, the sensitivity to negative reviews to you know, feeling like, uh, you know, he was risking losing his audience at any time. I mean, that endured throughout his career. Yeah,
1: right? at the end of the book, you've got him up in Canada drinking and, and yeah. listing all his movies, writing them down paper and through the box office. This was a failure. This was a failure. It stuck with him. Yeah. Um, after Good Morning America, he becomes – a giant movie star, he's someone who then can command giant salaries and, and the idea that he's in a movie then makes the movie a hit. Not always, but, but often. Um, that era eventually ends for him. Um, we're Now it seems like we're in an era where there aren't really those stars, period. There's maybe a handful, um, maybe Dwayne Johnson slash The Rock, right? Mm-hmm. There's a couple people like that. And we're now in an era where um, it's, the fran- it's the franchise, right? It's, you go see a Marvel movie.
2: I think that's. I mean that that's the box that I think the studios have put themselves
1: right in. Yeah. Do you think that's? Do you think that's a temporary thing? Do you think eventually, sort of, stars then become a thing again, where we don't really care that it's Iron Man; we care that it's Robert Downey Jr. or whomever it is.
2: Well, I think it's the for for at least the the time being, it's been the kind of confluence of of the two is right. the right star in the right uh, franchise vehicle, and I think. You, you know i mean but there's some i
1: mean yeah. but it's 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 definitely tilted towards the franchise right we had we had uh Ben Fritz in here to talk about that. And there's, there's a lot of movies that, uh, that generate a lot of box office and you can't identify the star.
2: Oh, there's certainly, Most people uh, can't tell
1: you who Superman is.
2: Right. And and ver- I mean certainly no studio is going to, you know, put its uh, money and its muscle right. behind something that they don't think they can, you know, spin five or six movies out of and build a whole kind of, uh, you know, imaginary universe from anymore. So they, do,
1: you, do you think that it says more about the movie business and sort of Budgets and leverage and, and sort of what Disney needs to do to make its bottom line uh, to affect its bottom line versus not having stars that are sort of worldwide and, and recognized and charismatic enough to get people to come to something
2: yeah I think I you know I mean this is going to be a very cynical answer but I do think it has more to do with the studios and the people running them than uh, than the talent I mean you know as Robin's story tells us I mean he was even even though he was perceived as an overnight sensation at the time he was by no means That And it took, you know, development and it took, you know, people giving him opportunities at various stages before he became the big star that he was. Uh, You know, now I think – the studios are basically, uh, you know, just gamblers at the – you know, at the roulette table and they have put themselves in a position where – they have to every time bet the entire house. They can't there's, – there's nothing in between. And, and so they can, o- they can only make their money if everything is, you know, a billion-dollar franchise with, you know, the possibility of five sequels and 15 uh, spin-offs, And they've put themselves in that position.
1: In the run-up to this book being published, there was – there's a Me Too story in, in this book and it's, it's uh, Robin Williams' co-star, Pam Dauber. Morgan Mindy, um, saying something effective. the effect of, yeah, he would grab me all the time. Um, he'd grab my breast, grab, bo- grab my bottom. Um, I just said boob. That's a weird thing to say aloud, But it's not something you spend a lot of time on. Um, in the book, you sort of contextualize. And by the way, she says, and I didn't really mind, um, as you were reporting that, did you think, "Oh, this is something that's going to uh, attract attention"? This anecdote will attract attention. Did you think, "No, this is contextual"? And, and at the time, it, it's it's like his drug use. It's not. It's something a lot of people did, and and not and not, and not a very newsworthy thing.
2: No, I, I didn't think of it in either way. I mean, it was a story that she told me and right. you know volunteered. So I I thought I'll, I'll include this and let the. You know, let people decide. But I think I I understand why people are uh, you know kind of looking to it and seizing upon it. And I th- I think it's it's because it's it's complex. It, you know, it is. On the one hand, the way that Pam uh, describes it, you know, she and Robin were very friendly on the show. Uh, I mean they almost had a kind of sibling relationship in the sense that they were around around the same age. They had both grown up, uh, you know, in – at times in, in, you know, sort of Tony parts of uh, Michigan. And so uh, they looked out for one another and that was how they interacted. And I mean not – again, not to – Make any excuses for Robin, but for example, if you watch uh, that Roxy show that he did, the last segment is him. He pulls John Ritter up on stage to improvise with him, and he does kind of the same things. He doesn't right. strip off his clothes, but you know he grabs at yep. him and he's you know you know hitting at his crotch. And so on some level, that was you know a playful way that Robin engaged with people. But of course, it's very different when it's it's with a woman. And you know, even though on the one hand, as you say, Pam Dauber says. Uh, You know, she wasn't bothered by it. It was the 70s. That was how uh, people behaved. There's no question that there's also a kind of, uh, you know, power dynamic at at play in terms of how, you know, why why and how Robin is, I think, behaving that way with
1: her. Because one of the things you often hear as these stories come up is— this – and you heard it from Harvey Weinstein, right? And obviously it, it doesn't make any sense coming from him. Um, but a lot of people say, well, this – what you're talking about happened a long time ago and in the time and the context, it was not a big deal. Everyone did a version of it. Um, and and you've been reporting this book for three years. The Me Too stuff is, is less than a year old. Did the way you – thought about that incident change sort of over the last year as, as these stories started, as these, a wave of these stories came out?
2: Uh, no, not necessarily. Yeah. Uh, y- you know, again, I th- I mean, I'm not, I'm not uh, you know, I, th- I think the reasons for why he, you know, probably engaged in this kind of behavior are, are, you know, complex. And I think it does have to do, I mean, you know, he was not doing, as far as we know, uh, you know, I mean, he wasn't doing things like, you know, what, Harvey Weinstein is alleged to have done. Uh, But as I was saying earlier, I mean I think it it does have to do with the fact that, you know, this is my show. Uh, I'm the star of it. It's getting really popular and that gives me – I've, you know – the person thinks they have some license to behave in a
1: certain way. Right, he wasn't a PA doing this. No,
2: no, exactly. And even if he didn't mean it in a kind of specifically, uh, you know, as a kind of a, a come on, that, you know, I, I actually want to, you know, date or you know, be yep. romantic with you. Uh, it's still a way of kind of saying, you know, this, you know, this is my place. This is, and you know, I'm I'm the one in charge here. Uh, even even if it was done in a kind of you know a playful way, and even if if she you know says uh, that she's okay with it, I, I mean I th- I think you know I I can't I can't speak to you know to what extent that was going on in other shows. I, I I surely doubt that you know Ron Howard is doing that to Aaron Moran over on the Happy Days set.
1: Yeah, and with that, I'll, I'll leave Ron Howard out of it. It, it is it, – one of, one of the things about this wave of stories is, and he, you know, it's it should be disabusing us with the notion of, well, that person seems nice. I'm sure they couldn't have been doing that, right? Because
2: – Yeah, and Find I mean, over and over. Oh, no, no. Well, that, I think it's also, did. you know – I mean, not not to – you know, I, when, I think when people say it was the 70s, I mean, I, I feel like that's kind of shorthand for, you, you know – if you think that everybody is engaging in that, then that maybe gives you, gives yeah. you permission to behave that way. It doesn't mean that it's uh, acceptable or that that's the way that people should behave. But if you think that other people are doing this too, then maybe you think you're, you're allowed to. And, but clearly, you know, people shouldn't have
1: been. Speaking of excess in that era, I would forgotten, totally forgotten that Robin Williams was with John Belushi – the night that or the night before John Belushi was died, right?
2: Yeah, and that was, I mean, it, you know, th- that at, and, and to be explicit,
1: right? At the Chateau Marmont, while John Belushi was doing speed balls, and we, you well, kind, we, you kind of allied whether or not Robin Williams was doing drugs with him or not, but if you're they, hanging I mean, out with him, just, he probably you know, they, was.
2: They were, for, they were, I mean. Not best of friends, but they were acquainted with each other before that happened. each would, other. Yeah, they would hang out. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, Bob Woodward in, in Wired, you know, points out that they probably did share, you know, I mean, not go at the same time, but they had drug dealers yeah. that they, you know, were in common. And, you know, Belushi did come to the Mork and Mindy set, uh, you know, specifically to see, you know, Jonathan Winters, who was on the show at that time, and to watch him improvise. And they, he and Robin kind of made loose plans to you know, hang out later and one night, you know, Robin had his own kind of post-work routine where, you know, even after a full day of taping *Mork and Mindy*, he would go out and hit all the comedy clubs. And a big part of that uh, kind of dynamic was that even after the shows, then he would just be partying everywhere, and he, you know, e- either at clubs or bars or people's houses. There'd be a lot of drinking. There would be cocaine use. Uh, it wasn't widely known, or wasn't publicly known about him, but certainly in Hollywood, that was his reputation. And, you know, on this particular night, he, you know, he shows up at a West Hollywood club and he's told, you know, Belushi's at the Chateau and and he's looking for you. And he goes to Belushi's bungalow and he can already kind of tell Robert. But first he
1: tries to find Robert De Niro and Robert De Niro can't come down from his room, which is a funny line. Yeah.
2: And when he gets to, when he does get to Belushi, it's already a kind of, uh, uh, you know, this like seedy, uh, dissolute scene. And Belushi is with this woman, uh, Kathy Evelyn Smith, who has a kind of... Checkered past, and you know, at least by Robin's own account, he's just kind of weirded out by it all, and just and and leaves and goes home to his wife and tells her what he's seen, and then he was a little bothered by it, and then you know, over the over the course of the night into the early morning, uh, yeah, uh, Smith injected Belushi with a, a speedball, and he uh, he died in his sleep, and yeah, uh, Robin goes to work the next day. Basically oblivious to this, and it's Pam Dauber who at one point has to take him aside and tell him, "Hey, you know, Belushi died, and it really devastates Robin. For you know, just on the one hand, the the, the feeling that somebody you were just with is gone, uh, a person who Robin thought of as a real kind of comedic titan and and a force of energy, in the, you know, in in the way that he." Also became that's gone. That's uh, that was that was really difficult for him to process, and it was a uh, you know one of the big factors in Robin you know basically deciding to get clean. Yeah, that he basically just you know it goes cold turkey and for. Uh, you know, many years did successfully stay away from uh, drugs and alcohol.
1: You mentioned the Bob Woodward book about Belushi. That book came out and really criticized for for not. I mean, the, the family was very protected, but in general, it's sort of like, oh, this is a square who doesn't really understand John Belushi and the culture he was in and his importance. And it's 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 less to do with the the criticism had less to do with the facts than just that he just didn't get what he was writing about. Did you think about that at all? When I mean, you specialize. One of your specialties at the Times is writing about comedians and pop culture. I guess we sort of looked at this earlier. Like, the idea of, like, trying to correctly transmit sort of the ethos of a person, not just sort of the facts.
2: You know, I, I can... I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I can only kind of, you know, point my radar in the direction that it leads me, and I just... I, I just try to do it in the best way that I can I, you know I, I feel uh, I think it was fortunate I think that I, you know I did have some previous exposure to Robin and did get to spend time with him for a couple of stories uh, you know nearer the end of, of his life and at least get a, get a, a sense of what he was a, a, what he was like as a person you know at those times How
1: important is it for you to like the person you're writing spending three years of your life writing about? You clearly so, like him.
2: Yeah, I, th- I, I would have had to. I don't. I could not have committed. I think the the, the time and the. I mean, you have to be in, interested.
1: Uh, I mean, I, but you can be interested as a lad, But you clearly. I mean, you say so in the book, right? Like he was a big deal to me. I looked up to him. He brought me a lot of joy. He was personally nice to me. Um, you know, you could have tackled someone who was complicated and fascinating and interesting, but was. Bad to you, or by the way, you'd never met.
2: Oh, sure. I mean, my last book uh, before this was about Patty Chayefsky, who is also fascinating and about network. Yes, and he was brilliant. And I have a feeling that if we'd ever met, he probably would not have liked me, uh, and I, I could live with that. But uh, you know, with, with Robin, and, and certainly the you know the conversations that I, I had with him for some of the pieces that I wrote. I mean, he had just had a whole series of. Uh, you know, really difficult things befall him. So, you know, uh, by the time I, I, I the, the the period that I spent the most time with him was in 2009, and so in, in just in the preceding years, you know, he'd had a relapse into alcoholism and had gone into rehab for that. Uh, and when he came out uh, and was clean, he got divorced. Uh, from his second wife, uh, Marsha, who was very integral uh, not only to his uh, personal life but you know also had a lot to do with uh, his work and keeping him organized. Uh, so you know they had split up and then he had started to prepare a new comedy tour and go out on the road and in the, it just right at the start of that tour started having heart problems and then had to have valve replacement surgery. So the whole tour was put off. So those are pretty difficult things and I bring them up only because when he and I would, would – You know, have our our interviews or conversations. He was open about all of this, and and you know, often as an interviewer, particularly I think when you're talking to uh, highly visible people, celebrities, and and it's known that negative things have happened in their life. They don't want to talk about it, or it they you really have to. Work up to it, and you have to carefully construct your conversation so that they feel open enough to discuss some of those things with you. Everything with him was on the table, and he, especially, uh, you know, the alcoholism and the recovery, and the the real understanding of, uh, I, I think, some of the the, the just the really uh, awful things he had done while he was drinking, and and then his feeling that you know it had had kind of put a stain on on him and the fa- his family. He was really willing to to go there. And I think if if he hadn't been so candid and and open about himself in that way, it would have been much harder to write something like this. I
1: want to leave it there, but I just I, there's sure. just that one idea you brought up, which is that he was both super open and candid and and almost comically sort of like out there. Uh, and then you keep talking about this idea in the book that actually he closed off a portion of him, and, and this is his ongoing theme, like no one got a full view of him. And sure. by the way, that's probably true of everyone, right? Yeah. But well, I mean, it's, it's an interesting it's, theme yeah. that, you, that you, you, you carry throughout the book.
2: Yeah, I mean, just to clarify, I mean, you know, those conversations that I had with him that you know again that was fairly late in his life I don't want to pretend that like somehow you know he confessed everything to me yeah. and only to me I mean if you look look at you know I mean very famously he gave a great interview to uh, Mark Maron yep. about a year later where you know just very confessional and 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 vivid and and honest and uh, but you know and and I think that that comes after You know, going to rehab and getting clean and it's something that I've seen in other uh, recovering addicts. My own father, I think, uh, after he got clean had this sudden just kind of uh, catharsis, this burst of, uh, you know, candor and honesty. People say that that happens after people have uh, open heart surgery and they they literally have to break open your chest to get to your heart and that – Somehow has a metaphorical effect on people too. Uh, it's a True thing. But yeah, I, I mean, even even to you know the end of his life, I mean, uh, you know, Robin's you know closest friends, his own you know his own son felt like you know there were still uh, facets of him that uh, either you know he kept only to himself or that they you know they couldn't reach.
1: Dave, this is great. I enjoy talking to you about Robin Williams, but we're not done because we need to talk about Twitter. Oh, boy. So we're going to come right back.
2: Okay. Hi, this is Dan Fromer, editor-in-chief of Recode.
1: We're conducting an audience survey and want to hear from Recode Decode listeners. We're interested in hearing your thoughts about how we can better serve you on this podcast and in all the places and platforms where Recode has a presence. The survey is completely painless and will take just five minutes of your time. To share your thoughts, just head to recode.net slash survey. That's recode.net slash survey. And thank you for being a member of the Recode community, and thanks in advance for helping us continue to improve. I'm back here with Dave Itzkoff, who is the author of Robin, also New York Times culture reporter, and also the world's best Twitter. These last two things are connected in my mind, Dave. You have a great Twitter account. Thank you. You have 218,000 followers. That doesn't mean it's great. It just means a lot of people read your tweets. I do. I love them. Two related questions. How much time do you spend creating and curating this stuff? Because you have great jokes that you layer in, but you also do great visual things. On Saturday night, you're Grabbing screen grabs and clips from Saturday Night Live almost in real time. Um, this isn't doesn't seem like a casual thing, but you're also working full time in the New York Times.
2: How much of your life is spent on Twitter? It probably too much, yeah. even as as I try to limit it and and rein it in. I mean, it was tremendously uh, useful just during the you know the creation and the writing of this book because uh, you know writing is a pretty uh solitary process and at least you know having a you know a, a tweet deck column uh you know open in the background makes you feel like you're not entirely by yourself you can still kind of you know keep an eye on other people's conversations or or, or chime in uh you know when when you feel like it and uh, you know I feel but,
1: you know, to be clear right it's yeah. I get the I'm reading twitter as a
2: distraction yeah you're also spending a lot of time creating awesome
1: Twitter content. Uh,
2: how much? I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that in the aggregate, it has probably sucked more time out of my life than yeah. I really want to know. But the, like, you know, you, I mean, you tweet also the, the what, like the, the total, you know. Yeah, but I'm not
1: good at it like you are.
2: But, but, it, composing, if that's even, I mean, it's almost too grand a word, but to create a tweet, that's a time investment of 20 seconds.
1: I'm going to go at it one more time. Okay. There's the, I'm going to retweet someone or I'm going to add one line of funny commentary that probably is less funny than I think of Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's that's me. That's right. a lot of people. <laughs> you you are often constructing multimedia stuff, right? I'm here. It's May 9th. This is yesterday. Uh-huh. You've done something with with Rudy Giuliani <laughs> at a baseball game a screen grab, and then uh, and then you've got a – it's a much better tweet to look at than to hear me describe the tweet anyway, <laughs> and then you've got another screen grab of, of presumably him Googling law. Again, it's better to read it than for me to – and 15,000 people liked it. It's a great tweet. Um, so that took more than a minute.
2: Not much more. Okay. Literally. Uh, you know, I mean I, I, I will – if, if we're going to unpack this and and, yes. and drain it of, yes. of all comedy, which is the best way to uh, analyze an art form, so you know, uh, you know, Giuliani happened to be at that Yankees game the other night, and you know, so even as I'm. Uh, you know online looking at other things i can see okay people are tweeting this photo of Giuliani he is conspicuously looking at his own phone in in the picture that is a kind of time tested uh setup yes. for a kind of twitter Yes. What was the joke. Super Bowl kid? Yes the, the, the that was the kid who was looking at his own phone yes. even as Justin Timberlake yes. was like approaching him in mid performance. Excellent one. Yeah i mean that was that's that that was that was the the apotheosis of this uh Uh, joke construct. So I certainly was thinking of of things like that, that that when you see that, you know, that is the setup for okay, the next, it's like a two-part joke and the second part is what is it that they're looking at on their phone? And so it's pretty easy to go from that to think of, okay, now he must be, he's looking at a uh, a, a Google page where he's looked up what what is the law, and so it takes you know I don't know five to ten seconds to create that screen grab. You put them together in a tweet, and good night.
1: You spend a lot of time talking to comedians; it's one of your specialties. Um, writing about them, talking to them for the New York Times. How much are you sort of thinking? This is my form of what they do. No, no, because I you know I I yeah, but. Just a little bit. No,
2: no. I, I mean, I,
1: I. I can't, I can't get up on stage and tell a joke, but I can
2: do this tweet. No, because it's, it's, it just not, it's just, it's okay. just not even the same. I, I mean, I appreciate it if people, you know, take pleasure in, in, yeah. in these things, and that's, it, you know, it certainly, you know, can. It, as I said, I mean, it definitely helped me get through, uh, you know, the process of, of, of writing this book. It, it is, it, it you know, as a kind of, uh, a reward system or a pure distraction. It was helpful, but I, I don't, I, you know, it is, it isn't. It certainly isn't my job. Uh, it's it's nice to, you know, now have a kind of uh, a pool of people that, you know, when I want to make people aware of, uh, you know, an event or development with this book or, hey, yeah. it's out today. That's nice that I can I can share that with them. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't in any way consider – I mean the people who get up on a stage and, and you know, perform, I mean that what they're doing is – uh, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of bravery in that, and a lot of risk in that. I'm not I'm not doing any of that.
1: Come on, tweeting's very brave too. Um, <laughs> uh, last Twitter question. Sure. The Times, for a long time, allowed its writers to pretty much do what they want on Twitter. The the social media policy was just don't screw up. Um, sometime in the last year, it became more restrictive. The writers were told, listen, you got to rein this in. Be much more aware of the fact that you represent the New York Times, and really, and specifically about politics, we want you to sort of buckle down. I haven't seen any change in, in your tweets. I know you're not a political reporter, obviously, um, but you're certainly making political jokes on Twitter all the time. It, what's the feedback like from the Times? You're
2: clearly still doing it, so that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, I don't want to, you know, the people who create the policy, uh, you know, would be better at articulating this or explaining it. But, you know, for a while, I mean, there wasn't. Uh, you, you know, a really sort of carefully codified. Uh, no, it wasn't at on, all. It was. It was. We be... trust
1: you. You're adults. You work at the New York Times, well, so don't screw up.
2: I mean, that maybe that was the perception. But I mean, you know, just as a guidance. I mean, we as reporters were not given much, much more than a couple of paragraphs about right. you know. Just be, you know, even-handed, or be balanced, or be, you know, be fair, and be aware of what you're doing on on so, social media. So, that has was, your
1: behavior changed since since the new policies in place? I,
2: I I don't. I mean, I don't know that it has, but I certainly try to be, you know, cognizant of of what uh, what they want. I understand why uh, they you know issued the guidelines that they did because it did need to be, I think, you know, articulated more more fully, and because it is it is still a new frontier. It is still kind of the wild west and you know i think to 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 lean on the assumption that okay people are just going to people just know in their heart what the right thing is to do and they're all going to do it on a daily basis at the volume at which you know a lot of reporters are tweeting and they do want to encourage people to participate in social media it's st- it's it's st- you still have to you know i think spell out to people uh, you know how how to do it uh, from a time standpoint. I think they did have to, uh, you know, just put put that down in words for word people. What's
1: what do you think the relationship with the Times and the people you're writing about most often? The uh, not the Rob Williams, but the Seth Meyers and and prominent comedic figures um, who often, if they're talking to the Times, are talking to you. Um, What's your, what's your sense of the way they view the times?
2: That's an that's an interesting question. I don't I don't entirely know. I mean I'm sure it's an important source of information for them because they're often you know riffing on or you know making material out of news stories that the Times is is helping to break. So it's yeah.
1: Important. I'm wondering if they think well this is the this is the paper of record. This is the biggest deal, or this is one of many sources. Or I used to think it was one of many sources, but now post Trump, I,
2: I pay more attention than ever to it. Yeah, I think people. I mean it, it, this is. This is just me slapping my own back just as a Times employee. I'm not the one, you know, breaking these stories at all. But, you know, I mean, you, you do hear from, you know, people who are working in kind of, you know, topical comedy in different ways. They are appreciative of it as uh, an institution because, I mean, they, you know, if, if they have institutional memories, I mean, they've known that the Times has, you know, I mean, it, it's it's had to, you know, uh, go through some, uh, you know, at times difficulties or at times growing pains in, over the years and they're, I think, happy that it has, uh, you know, th- that the brand really means something and that it, it, it's, you know, hopefully still, you know, kind of finding its way in uh, a pretty uh, wild time right now.
1: Um, I'm glad you work with the New York Times. Thank you. I enjoy uh,
2: reading your stuff. Thank you. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm really glad I worked there too. My, my wife and my son are glad I worked there. Uh, you got another book lined up? No, 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 no. Do you take how – long, how long of a break do
1: you need after a three-year book project?
2: I, I'm, I'm about to find out. I yeah. mean I, I thought when I finished the book on Patty Chayevsky that, you know, I didn't want to necessarily undertake something of even that scale for a while. And, and I was working on this, I don't know, nine or ten months later. So, and By
1: the way, you kept working the times while you did this. Yeah. 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 I want to just hold the book in my hands. It's – you know, they always make the hardcovers – heftier, but it's it's a big heave of a book. I, it was, you uh, didn't, you didn't, I mean, now you're going to tell me you did this sort of on nights and weekends, but you can't do this on nights and weekends. Yeah, you
2: can. I mean, that's, that's the only way I could do it. I, I will say, I highly recommend if you want to write a book, also have a child in the midst of that process because it will really force you to organize your time. Dave, you seem like a really smart guy.
1: That seems like terrible advice. But if that's where you want to go out on this podcast, that's where we will let it go. Dave Itzkoff, thank you for coming and and giving us terrible parenting advice and writing a great book. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So Dave, we want, we want to I want to do what we, you couldn't do in your book and drop in a little Robin Williams. Um, what what are we going to hear? What what era of Robin Williams are we going to listen to right now?
2: I think Live at the Met, which is from 1986, is uh, people may disagree, but it's it's my favorite stand up special of his. This I is think.
1: Robin Williams post Mork, yes. still a big
2: comedy star, trying unsuccessfully to be a movie star. Right, uh, Good Morning Vietnam has not happened yet, uh, but by now you know he is not. Uh, using cocaine anymore so he's pretty happy about that and uh, his son Zach was born about three years prior to this so he is still in the glow of being a parent of a young child and, and all the ways that that has uh, changed his life for the better okay let's listen don't you see i are gonna do everything for him work with him raise him nourish him spend time with him and 16 years from now he's gonna do to me what I did to my father going to walk right up to me, look me right in the eye and go, God, Dad, you're fucked. <laughs> my father be standing right behind him going, yes. <laughs> yes. Ah. Revenge is mine. The curse has been broken. Your mother and I are young again. No, Papa, thing you know, you're talking to your kid like, you know, your mother and I were so poor, we had to smoke weeds, we were that poor. We didn't have MTV in the old days, son. We used to get stoned and watch the radio, yeah. And you have dreams about your kid. You have dreams that maybe one day, your kid will be up there going, I'd like to thank the Nobel Academy. Then you have this other dream where your kid's going, do you want fries with this? <laughs>
1: Thanks to you guys for listening. If you like this, tell a friend about it. That's all we ask. Thanks to our advertisers, our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media, bringing those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edits this show, and to my producers, Golda, Arthur, and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media. I am back next week. I will see you then.